You're listening to the Redemption Hill Church podcast from Tallahassee, Florida. For more information, visit our website at rh-church.com. Hey, Pastor Chad here. I'm so glad you've taken the time to listen. We're currently studying verse by verse through the book of Acts. Among other things, we'll see the mission, the persecution, and the expansion of the church. Now, time for this week's message. If you guys have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, why don't you guys open them up to the book of Acts. The book of Acts, and we're going to be in chapter 9 today, Acts chapter 9. Well, you guys, let's go ahead and pray, and we're going to get right at it today. Lord, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for all the things you've done for us. I thank you for um, just, just this amazing opportunity that we have to come together. And, and Lord, I, I, do, I ask that, that you really, in the next few moments, um, meet us where we're at. And Holy Spirit, I really do pray that you convict us and show us and, and make this, this particular passage real in, in our lives. Um, or we'll look at a few different characters today. And, and, and Lord, I think, I, I believe that there's something, every time we open up your word, there's something that we can learn from and gain and, and, and place in our lives. And so, Lord, we ask that, that today you change us as we talk about this, this man today and this conversion, arguably the greatest event in the New Testament aside from your death and resurrection. We look at the magnitude of that, and we see a, a, a pillar of Scripture here, but then we also see a, what could be considered a somewhat insignificant character, but, but his, his willingness to do what you asked would have eternal consequences and eternal rewards. And so, Lord, I believe that there's something here for all of us. Holy Spirit, I pray that if there's some here today that have never accepted you as their Lord and Savior, that today's the day that you grip their hearts and that you have this Damascus road, this bright light um, experience with them today. There's some of us who, who have wandered away. God, I pray you call us back. Lord, I just pray that you just work in a mighty way. I pray that you help me to be faithful to your word and your word alone. I pray that you give me your words, give me your heart, give me your passion. May everything I say be in line with what, what was meant. Lord, we love you and we thank you for all that you've done. We look forward to what you're going to do today in a bright, bright future. It's in your son's precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Um, so we've been going through the book of Acts, verse by verse. And we're in very, very soon, the book takes another kind of transition. It, it, it changes the direction in which it's going. And today, we, we come back to a character that we were introduced to, a, a, this guy by the name of Saul. And if you remember the story, you go back in, in Acts chapter 6, the church has this kind of this problem of sorts. There's this uh, ministry that these... Um, some of these widows don't feel like they're being attended to properly, and so the disciples can't handle all of it, plus preach and teach and do all these things. And so they call the church together, and they point these seven men to, to kind of be the Meals on Wheels program and to take the food and the goods and stuff like that to these women. And they, they chose these seven, and they list these seven um, individuals. And one that was listed there was this man by the name of Stephen, and Stephen is really only present for two chapters. But in those two chapters, we see this, this um, dynamic force that God used. 
And so Stephen's ministry, you know, began with taking care of these widows, and, and it began to increase as he was faithful to God, and, and these talents, these abilities, these gifts that God gave him to, to teach and, and all began to flourish. And, and the Sanhedrin, the high priest, these people were getting up, upset. They were getting annoyed. Stephen is talking about um, how while the law was good, we don't need to worship the law, and while the temple's good, um, the temple doesn't save us, and while our heritage is nice, something we should be proud of, our heritage doesn't get us to heaven. And those kind of three pillars really flew in the face of, of, of these Jews. And so the high priest and the Sanhedrin hunted Stephen down. They, they arrested him, and, and he stood trial, and it was somewhat of a mock trial. And almost all of chapter 7 is his defense, or really it's a sermon. It's the second longest sermon recorded in the New Testament. And Stephen goes through and, and gives reasons why those things that they're hanging their hats on don't hold up. And the result was they just got mad, they got upset, they got angry, to the point where they dragged Stephen outside of the city and they began to stone him. And as we talked about that particular story, I, you know, I tried as best I could to, to be able to craft it in a way where we understood it wasn't like these guys were just taking gravel and these little stones and they were tossing them at Stephen. You know, they had, they had more than likely pushed him off of this cliff, and, and he probably fell somewhere between 10 and 12 feet. And then they were taking these large stones, and, and, and we were introduced to this character, this guy by the name of Saul. And the way we're introduced to him is, is those who were stoning him would take their outer garments off, and they were placing them at, at his feet as if to get approval, like, are we sure we're good with this? And Saul nods in approval, and they take these, these large stones and begin chunking them down on Stephen, and Stephen ultimately dies. And, and that, that last glimpse that we see of Stephen is very Christ-like in that as he looks up at those who are casting these stones, he cries out to God, Father, forgive them. They, they don't understand what they're doing. Don't hold them accountable for this. And, and fury fills these people even more because this Stephen had this glow about them about him. And so we see that's where we're introduced to Saul. And, and Saul witnesses all this. And Saul was, was more than likely on the Sanhedrin. He had, he had listened to the whole council. He had, he had probably had multiple run-ins with Stephen. He had seen the character of Stephen. He had heard what Stephen had preached. He's seeing all this take place. He's seeing this church. And, and one of the things we have to understand with this guy named Saul is Saul's a, a very religious man. Okay? It's not like he's against, he's not anti-religion. Okay? He's a very religious man. He had all this you know, private education growing up. He, he knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. I mean, he was a very religious man. And we might not always hear this in church, but the problem is religion will get us tripped up if we're not careful. That's why we often try and refer to our, our faith as a faith journey, and we try to focus in on our relationship with Christ. See, when we get into this box of religion, it becomes this, the do's and the don'ts. It becomes a bunch of these rules and regulations, much like what these uh, Jews here were facing. And, 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 um, and, and Saul was, was so adamant about the law and all these things that they can and can't do. And so Saul sees all this, and rage fills him. And after we see the story of of, of of Stephen, the next chapter, we get into chapter 8, we get to the next deacon, if you will, Philip. And there's these two great stories about Philip and, and how he leaves, but, but there's this great exodus of sorts out of Jerusalem. 
A lot of these Christians now are leaving Jerusalem and out of fear because there's this witch hunt for the Christians. And so they go, and, and this is where we, we see um, the Great Commission, the Acts 1-8, begin to really play out. They're, they're leaving Jerusalem. And, and we saw Philip going to Samaria, and, and at first we had this interaction with him and this great revival in Samaria, and this um, interaction with him and the sorcerer, you know, Simon. And then last week we talked about the Ethiopian eunuch. And here we go, and we're going to look at this. I'm going to try and break this today's passage up into kind of two sections. So I'm going to read Acts 9, 1 through 9. We're going to talk about that, and then we're going to go 10 through 19, and then we'll go get lunch. All right? Here we go. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. It says, But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what, to do, what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. And so this Saul, the one that we saw that was gathering the garments as Stephen was being stoned. I mean, this Saul is, is leading this witch hunt. And it's interesting because when we were back at this interaction with Stephen, it was, it was below Saul to be the one um, casting the stones. He was kind of sitting in this place of dignity. But as he watched this, something grabs a hold of his heart, and, he, and this, this hatred begins building. And so he goes from just kind of observing and allowing others to do the dirty work to being the hound dog, the one going out there and searching and finding. And he goes to the high priest, and he's like, all right, we've taken care of, of Jerusalem, kind of the outer back. We need to go a little bit further. So he, he goes to the high priest. He's like, okay, I want the names and the addresses of the people in Damascus. Now, so we understand this. Damascus is about 150 miles away. Back in Bible days, it would have been about a six to seven day journey. That's how much he's upping his game. He's going to go over to this other land, this other city, and he's going to search and, and, and he's going to arrest those and, and almost like in a parade-like fashion, the idea was arrest them, bound them up, and drag them back to Jerusalem. And let's put them on trial with the likeliness that they would all be killed. And that's his intent. And so he begins to leave and go towards Damascus. And I, 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 that first verse that we read when it talks about still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And that's... that's Remember when we talked about Stephen, they, they were gritting their teeth? That's how mad and how, how much vile has filled this Saul. 
And so he's marching. He's, he's got the team together, and they're going. And on the midst of this journey, on their way to Damascus, something amazing happens. This, this bright light occurs, and, and this voice comes down from heaven to the point where it knocks Saul off of his horse onto the ground. Now, Saul's not by himself. He's got a group of people with him. They hear the voice, but they can't understand what's being said. They, they know there's a noise. They can't distinguish what's being told. They, they see the light, but it doesn't blind them. But, but it does Saul. And Saul, he, Saul hears this voice. And I, I, I find this, again, I, it's so fascinating. Because as he hears this voice, in verse 4 it says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And, and Saul responds with this saying, he says, who are you, Lord? Now, when we see that word Lord there, that's not him identifying the voice as Jesus or as Lord. That'd be his polite way. Of, it'd be like him saying, who are you, sir? Okay, so he's like, what, I hear a voice. The light's blind to me. Who, who are you? The voice says, why are you persecuting me? And Jesus identifies himself. This is where I think we as believers can take some comfort. Because as Saul's going on this witch hunt for Christians, and as he's arresting, as he's beating, as he's having these Christians murdered, and, and what's to me is fascinating about this particular story, the author of Acts, Luke, mentions this three different times. Here in Luke, or in Acts 9, later in Acts 22, and then finally again in Acts 26, it's Paul in his conversion. So if, if he mentions it three times, I think it's pretty important. And Saul, this religious man who's on this witch hunt for these Christians, hears this voice saying, why are you persecuting me? And I don't know what's going through Saul's mind. I don't know if he's in his mind, he's trying to figure out who is that voice and, and trying to match up a face with that name, with that voice. But the reality is this. This is where I think we take comfort. When someone persecutes a believer, they're also persecuting Christ. And Christ identified himself with us. I mean, think, you guys, those things like blow my mind. Because we're talking about like Jesus Christ who, who left heaven and came to earth. We're talking about the God who created all this universe. We're, we're talking about this massive, amazing God, but yet he's identifying with us. And when someone does something wrong to us, when somebody persecutes us as believers, Jesus is saying, what you do to them, you're doing to me. And Saul will, will rise up, and as we look at that, and as you consider the story, there's, there's almost this humor that's playing into it. Because this, this mighty Saul, this one that was going around and intimidating all these Christians, these, these one, this, this one that was causing all this strife, this one who, who they would come to for approval, now is helpless. He's blind. And he has to rely on these other people now to escort him to another city. It's a much different Saul than at the beginning of the chapter. And so now we get to this next passage, this next section, 10 through 19. It says, Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias? And he said, Here I am, here I am Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. 
And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. The Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, and, G- and Lord Jesus, who appear- the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and regained his sight. And then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. So this Saul is led to Damascus. And I, I, I don't know what the full intent of this is. As Jesus appears to Ananias in his dream, Ananias is quick to respond. He says, here I am, Lord. I'm here. What, what, what do you want? And when you get to verse 11, I think it's, it's pretty awesome because you have the Lord appearing to a guy by the name of Ananias in a vision. And he says, Ananias, I want you to go to this house, this guy's house named Judas. And in that house, there's a guy named Saul, and I want you to meet him. So let's put on our, like, Bible caps for a minute. Okay, and, and think of those, like, those names. Ananias. We talked about Ananias in chapter 5 of Acts. You guys remember what Ananias did? Ananias' wife, Sapphira. Right, they, they end up lying to the church and the Holy Spirit. Like, they, they, they are going to try and look like the big shots. They want to make it look like they're giving all this great wealth is great offering to the church and so they they lie though they, don't, they only give it a, a, a portion and so peter calls them out and the result is god strikes ananias dead and then later his wife and so the last time we read about an ananias we see the liar ananias and what about judas like we don't have to we don't have to be in church really of growing up in church to really when we when you hear the word judas most of us know what judas is associated with right i mean not too long from now, we just kind of entered that Lent season, but, but next month we'll be celebrating Easter, and we'll talk about Jesus and dying on the cross, and, and Judas was the one that betrayed him. And so it's, these are, it's not the same Ananias, it's not the same Judas, but notice the name. And then if you think about Saul, just even if you go back in the Bible history, and you go back to, to Saul in the Old Testament, the first king of Israel, um, Saul ended up not being a very good guy, did he? And so you have these, like, these three names, and I love it, I, and I really believe this. I believe like Luke identifies these through the prodding of the Holy Spirit, almost as if to show us that God can redeem everything. I mean, God can redeem an Ananias, he can redeem a Judas, he can redeem a Saul. And that's exactly what he did here. You have all these partners coming together, and, and, they're, and, and they arrive, and, and folks, we become very familiar with Saul, because in another chapter or two, Saul's name shifts over to Paul. And Paul writes more than half the New Testament, and, and, and Paul has this amazing testimony. And, and, and we, so we know a lot about Paul. But Ananias here, this is the only time in reference to the, to the conversion of, of Saul, of Paul, this is the only time we read about Ananias. That's it. 
And, and, and let's think through this. Let's try and place ourselves in Ananias' spot. You, you get a vision, and, and Jesus tells you, okay, I want you to go. I want you to go to this Saul. And you know exactly who this Saul is. You don't know anything about the bright lights. You don't know anything about the voices he's heard. You don't know anything about him being blind. You don't know any of this conversion stuff. All you know is there's this guy that's coming. That he knows that, that, that more than likely, for all we know, Ananias' name could have been on that list given to Saul. I mean, chances are probably pretty good that Ananias knows somebody who has been arrested and probably killed by Saul. He, he's heard all the stories. He's heard about Stephen. He's heard about all these horrendous, horrific things. And Jesus says to you, go. I don't know that I would have jumped up with joy if I was given the same directions. I mean, in this, in this passage we read, Ananias goes back to him, he's like, is this the same guy that did all this? And Jesus' response is simply, just go. And what I find so amazing is that Ananias got up and went. He left. He left his home. He went over to Judas' house. He goes in there, into this room. And I don't know what gripped his heart, but could you imagine walking into that room and seeing a blind Saul? Saul can't see you, but you can see him. All those thoughts, all those stories going through your mind, and you're staring at him. How would you respond in the same situation? Ananias goes over to him. Verse 17 says he lays his hands on him and says, Brother Saul. You know, Valentine's Day is a day that we talk about love, right? The Bible tells us that we ought to love one another. It doesn't tell us, like here's a list, like if, if, if they fall into this criteria, you should love them. Like if they're in this economic bracket, if they're part of this political party, if they're part of this nationality, if they're part of this denomination, like, okay, if, they're, if, they're fall, if they meet these specs, love them. No. And the Bible commands us that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we're supposed to love God first and then those around us next. And, and when we read those verses and we, we, we put them on a coffee mug or screensaver on our phone or we, our Facebook banner looks like that, I mean, those are easy things to do, but like living those things out aren't nearly as pretty, are they? This past Wednesday night, we, we've been going through this book called Multiply, our, our adults and our youth. And um, we, we're in this section now that began about the church. And, 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 what the, and our involvement in the church. And, and we talked about one of the, the, the portions of that was um, carrying one another's burdens. I, I've typically, Matt or Dennis will do the adults in here, and I go in with the youth. And I, I, it was one of my most enjoyable experiences listening to our youth talk. Because in the book, we talk about how like, like church shouldn't be an option. And really, honestly, church should be more than just a Sunday morning get-together. That's why I believe like small groups are so important. I understand we have schedules and things like that don't dictate like perfect attendance, and perfect attendance isn't going to get us to heaven or, or, or anything like that. But listen, church 
should be part of a, a family. That's what we call you guys our faith family. And when we were talking about that with our youth, we were talking about carrying uh, one another's burdens. Like, that's not easy. That's, it's not fun. It's never, in, in, in all my 40 years of life, I will tell you this, it's never been convenient. I mean, most of us can think of times when, when, when we already have a busy schedule and then our phone rings and someone needs help and we look at our schedule and it just, we just can't even find time to cram it in there. I think of Ananias walking into that room and seeing that poor, helpless Saul. And there's probably a part of Ananias that wants to keep him that way. He needs to learn his lesson. But yet Ananias goes to him, puts his hands on him, and calls him brother. Miraculously, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit fills Saul. These scales come off of his eyes figuratively, and he can see. He's baptized. And, and Jesus, as he's telling Ananias why he needs to go and in verses 15 and 16. You can underline those in your Bibles if you want, but that, those verses 15 and 16 of that, the, is a map of the ministry of Paul. In fact, what's pretty amazing in that passage is in um, verse six, 15, it says, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles. That's the first place in Scripture that we see the call to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And the one who will carry that banner to a great extent will be Paul. And so this insignificant Ananias, one that this is the only place that we read about, gets really this call from God to do something pretty difficult. I mean, he has no idea what the outcome will be. But he goes, and he does, and he leaves. And I don't for a second truly believe that Ananias knew that Paul would go on and do this great stuff for God. But as we read this, it reminds me, you know what? When God calls in our life, we need to be willing to listen. God may call you to do something that looks crazy. That when you, when you look and you plan it out, you look at the pros and the cons, it doesn't match up. I mean, you look at it and you're like, there's two or three good things, and there's a whole list of things that could go wrong. But if God says go, you ought to go. I think we can learn from this with Ananias that, that going to somebody, going, those people in our lives, everyone needs to hear the gospel. Like, I mean, right now, if I asked you to think of the most vile person you could think of in, in, in your circle whether at work or whatever, the, the one that says the most um, off-color jokes, the one that would be the, the absolute furthest from God, I will tell you this, God is pursuing his soul. And it may not look like on the outside, but there's a chance that you may be the Ananias that he's called to go, to reach out in a loving manner and help. See, God doesn't care so much about the fame he just cares about the faithfulness. We never know. If we were to go back here, most of us in this room today know who Billy Graham is, right? Probably like the greatest evangelical name in our lifetimes, our parents' lifetimes, and probably our grandparents' lifetimes. 
We all know Billy Graham, right? But, but do we know the name of the guy who led him to the Lord? I don't. But somebody, somebody took the time to go. Somebody invested in him. D.L. Moody, one of the greatest evangelists of the late 1800s, early 1900s. I mean, the one that would, would turn especially the Northeast upside down. We would see thousands upon thousands come to, see, to know the Lord in the United States and across the ocean. Now, he came to know the Lord through a Sunday school teacher, Bruce Kimball. You can find all sorts of books on D.L. Moody, but I highly doubt there's ever been a book written about Bruce Kimball. So we never know. We never know what God has in store for those in our lives. We, we never, honestly, we, most of us have no idea how the Lord is working, how the Lord is, is pursuing that person. I, I love, like, in, in the book of Revelation, you, in, in chapter 3, you have this beginning of these seven letters to the church, different churches. And Laodicea, Laodicea is this church that we, we know as being a lukewarm church. It's the one where Jesus says, you're neither hot nor cold. I want to spew you out. I want to spit you out. It disgusts me. Revelation 3.20, even though they're that way, even, even though they're, they're, that it, it, it makes him so upset, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. Even though they're doing that, he is pursuing them. He is, Jesus is the one standing at the door and knocking. Jesus, Romans 5, 8, Jesus is the one that left heaven and came to earth. See, that's all Jesus, and he did all that for us. He's pursuing us. And just like he pursued you and me, he's pursuing everyone. And how often in our minds we say, you know what? God can never get a hold of him. God, there's no way God could ever get a hold of her. Listen, this story of, of Saul blows that out of the water. I mean, I, I've said this before. It doesn't always completely hold up, but I will tell you this. Look, we read stuff today about terrorism, don't we? Like, all, I mean, we read, we hear all the time. Like, every time something bad happens, ISIS claims it, don't they? Now, Saul was not Muslim, but there are a lot of similarities to ISIS and to what Saul was like. I mean, they're on a religious campaign. I mean, they're blinded. They, they think their actions are going to do all these things, and it's a, a reckless pursuit of great violence. And Saul was doing the same thing. I mean, he was chasing. He was upset. He was mad. In his mind, he thought he was doing this service for God. We, we read about it in 1 Corinthians. We read about it in these other Acts. As we get through the book of, of, of Acts, we'll see it more. But, but to most of those Jews, they thought Jesus did not, was not the Messiah. They go back to the book of Deuteronomy where it talked about only a man cursed would hang from a tree. And so in their minds, they think there's no way that Jesus could be the Messiah. He hung from a tree. Old Testament law said he'd be cursed. There's no way. And folks, so often when I think of Paul prior to the bright lights and the voice of Jesus. I think of Paul as almost a person like Isis. And yet God grabbed a hold of him and changed him. And look what came out of that. There's so much that we can unwrap in this, in these 19 verses. For some of you this morning, 
you're having this Damascus Road experience. For some, I believe this, there, there are some here today that have never truly given their lives to Christ. And God's been knocking and knocking and knocking. Maybe today the light finally goes off. You're finally going to listen to the voice. You're going to finally surrender and give your life to Jesus. I mean, for, for maybe there's some of you, you know, God uses these Damascus Road experiences to knock us off of our own independence, to, to remind us that God is in charge, to remind us that, that God wants us and he wants what's best for us. And there are times in our lives where we think we know better than God, although we may not say it. And we will pursue other things or we'll get busy with things that, that really are not important. We'll be doing things that God's not called us to do. And there are times in our lives that God has to bring a Damascus Road moment to remind us that he's still there, that he still wants us. And those Damascus Road moments in the midst of it aren't fun. They're not, it's never enjoyable being thrown from a horse and being blinded. But God uses those. And again, like we said earlier, maybe this morning you can feel what Ananias felt. But there are people, you know that, that God's been pushing and prodding and tapping you to go talk to. But you've come up with excuse after excuse after excuse of why you shouldn't, why they won't listen. And maybe today it's just, listen, I'm going to go. I'm going to go talk to them. Maybe some of you, honestly, I think this is where a lot of us fall. Some of us just feel that we're insignificant. Like, who would want to listen to me anyways? Like, what's, I mean, I'm just, I'm just whatever, fill in the blank. I'm not famous. No one knows me. Look at Ananias. Look at the impact that God had on him. And, and you, here's, here's the deal. Guys, we all stand before God one day, okay? This is what I think is so awesome, right? Even though we, this is all we know about Ananias, right? But he was faithful in the job God gave him, right? And you know, I know something. I believe this. Ananias, his reward will be right up there with Paul's, right? I mean, he, he'll, he, no Paul, no, no laying of the hands on him, no conversion, and no uplifting, and no encouragement, and no account, all that. If Paul just stays blind in, that, in Judas's house, we don't have half of this New Testament, do we? And I believe this. I mean, I believe when, when Ananias stands before God and gives a final account for his life, we'll be able to look, and he'll be able to look at what Paul did and the ministry that Paul had and the people that Paul ministered to and those people and who they ministered to. And the train goes on and on and on and on. We all have a voice. We've all been called to deliver the Great Commission. Doesn't matter how tall you are. Doesn't matter how short you are. Doesn't matter how young you are. Doesn't matter how old you are. Doesn't matter how famous you are or insignificant you may feel you are. We need to go and tell. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for this day. I thank you for what you've done for us today. Thank you for this passage, these 19 verses. God, I thank you for, for Paul 
and how you did call him and how he did listen and, and yet you used abnormal events but you still grabbed a hold of his heart and he responded and he would go on and do amazing amazing things for you and while Paul is one of those heroes of the faith and an extremely recognizable name you used a little man named Ananias who we only read about in this one particular circumstance and he went and he was faithful he was faithful when you called him to do something that seemed crazy there, he was faithful when it seemed extremely unsafe he was faithful going into a very volatile situation and God you used him and his loving touch to help build this amazing man named Paul Lord, I believe this today. This room is filled with Paul's and Ananias's. Many of us, God, battle this, this feeling of insignificance. But we are great in your eyes. We are cherished. We are adopted children of you. And Lord, I pray you give us the boldness to go. To those who from the outside look like they're far from you, there's no way in the world they would ever ever listen. That's your job, God. That's your job. You're the one knocking on the door. Just help us to be faithful to go. And Lord, if there's someone here that are in that Damascus Road moment in life, have never accepted you, God, we pray that you bring them to you. But maybe it's, <clears throat> you're just, you brought them to a place to remind them of who you are and what you want and how they need to trust in you. Holy Spirit, I pray you just work today. May your word not return void. It's in your son's beautiful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Our goal at Redemption Hill is to see souls saved and lives changed. If the Holy Spirit spoke to you today and you made a decision, or maybe you have a question or a comment, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at chad, C-H-A-D, at rh-church.com If you don't have a a regular church home, we would love for you to consider visiting us. You can go to our website, rh-church.com or find us on Facebook for directions. Until next time.